the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through 2 Corinthians. Real love is calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes. It's drastic, but sometimes you have to actually say to someone, you can't worship here. Because if you want to continue to live this way, practice this lifestyle, do this, and you know that it is completely against God, you're aware of it, you 100% know it, you own it, and you don't care, you can't stay here. By putting someone out, they come to a place where they hit rock bottom quicker than if they're just coddled in the church. This is not an unloving thing. This is a loving thing, but it's a hard thing. People who follow God cannot willfully, persistently continue in sin. Discipline within the church, as Pastor Gary said, is a hard thing, but it is also a loving thing. When we allow someone to stay in fellowship who knows they are living in sin and choose to ignore all correction and continue in that sin, we are allowing a cancer into the fellowship of the Lord. But when we follow what Paul lays out for us here and discipline them, They may come to yearn for that fellowship and be moved to repentance. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection, subscribe to the podcast, or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 1 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. One of the highest forms of respect that you can pay to a person is to tell them the truth even when they don't want to hear it. Listen, there's a skill to it. You want to be careful to season the truth with grace, and you need to say the truth in the right way under the guise of, well, I'm just telling you the truth. I'm just being abrasive. Okay, that's not right. But sometimes people withhold the truth because they're too afraid of how it's going to be received. But the highest form of respect we can pay to a person is to speak the truth to them. Paul says, you know why I told you all those things? He said, it wasn't to grieve you. It was to show you the depth of my love. The reason I told you these things is because I love you. I can't hold back the truth. If I held back the truth, I wouldn't really be showing you that I loved you. I told you these things out of the anguish of my heart. I told you these things with tears. I told you these things out of great distress, not to grieve you, but to show you how much I love you. The next section is entitled Forgiveness for the Sinner. I'm going to read from verse 5 down through verse 11, then I'll come back and talk about what he's referring to. In verse 5, he says, If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. The reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. If you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. 
And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. All right, so this section is obviously he's addressing a particular person. He doesn't say the person by name, but he talks about this guy by pronoun, talks about excessive sorrow, talks about how you need to forgive him, you need to love him, you need to comfort him, so that Satan doesn't outwit us. Now, he's actually referring to a specific situation that I'm going to read briefly from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. One of the issues that they had going on in the Corinthian church, for which Paul was grieved, was they had this guy living in sexual sin, and the church was tolerating it. They were coming along, just slapping this guy in the back and just kind of like saying, you know what, bro, we all do this, you know? I mean, I know it's sexual sin for you right now, but at some point we've all committed sexual sin, so it's okay, bro, you know, we're all sinners just like you are, and so it's no big deal, go ahead. It's like all this love, 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 oh, we love you, bro, oh, we know you're living in sin, we know that you're, and what kind of sin was it? Ah, he's sleeping with his father's mother. Now, it's probably not his biological mom. But that's wicked, though, isn't it? I mean, that just is, he's sleeping with his father's mother. It's probably a stepmom. We don't know the background exactly here, but 1 Corinthians 5, this is what we know. Paul says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not even occur among pagans. A man has his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit, and I have already passed judgment on the one who did this just as if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. And he goes on saying, your boasting is not good. Now, they were probably not boasting like, yeah, okay, you know, you got this cougar, that's great. You know, it's probably not that. It was probably they're boasting like, aren't we loving? Aren't we loving to tolerate ongoing, unrepentant sin? That's the language ongoing, unrepentant sin. Isn't that good of us that we are loving this guy even though he's engaged in ongoing, unrepentant sin? Paul says, no. No, 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 that's not good. Why are you proud about that? You're not helping this guy. He needs to be right with God and you need to tell him the truth that he's living in sin and he can't be doing this kind of thing. Why are you tolerating this? This is not right. We need to be more long-suffering, and we need to be more cognizant of the fact that not everybody's like us, and we should love everybody, okay? But, you know, the whole word tolerance has taken on a definition all of itself now that, unfortunately, in the church can sometimes mean just kind of turn a blind eye and under the guise of God is love, and let's just not at all confront each other about the truth. And let me tell you something. We're not only dishonoring God when we do that. We're dishonoring each other. People need to know the truth because only when you know the truth will the truth set you free. And Paul says, you've been tolerating this guy. And so he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 about church discipline. And he basically talks through that chapter. And when we were in 1 Corinthians 5, we went over these things. He talks about on what basis should you exercise church discipline, in what manner, with what authority, and for what purpose. Now, just for the sake of our study now in 2 Corinthians, we're going to talk about for what purpose? And the reason why I'm comparing 1 Corinthians 5 with 2 Corinthians 2 is because it is believed that the guy mentioned here in 2 Corinthians 2 that Paul is referring to is the guy in 1 Corinthians 5. 
and that the guy in 1 Corinthians 5 was kicked out of the church because he didn't want to repent. He still wanted to sleep with his stepmother. And so apparently the Corinthian church followed Paul's advice. They enacted church discipline. They confronted the guy. He was unrepentant. And so they said, well, then you can't stay here in the church. You're going to have to go. And Paul says, hand him over. Because, you see, if the guy's coddled in the church, then he will never come to grips with the offense against God. And so sometimes it's drastic, but sometimes you have to actually say to someone, you can't worship here. Because if you want to continue to live this way, practice this lifestyle, do this, and you know that it is completely against God, you're aware of it, you 100% know it, you own it, and you don't care, you can't stay here. By putting someone out, they come to a place where they hit rock bottom quicker than if they're just coddled in the church. This is not an unloving thing. This is a loving thing, but it's a hard thing. So for what purpose is church discipline supposed to be enacted? Well, there's really for two reasons. One is for correction, salvation, and restoration of the person. It's for their benefit. There's a second benefit also, and that's the admonition, protection, and purification of the church. See, let's take, for example, that there's someone living in blatant sin. Let's say this thing is going on here, for example. Somebody's sleeping with a stepmother. He flaunts it. Everybody knows about it. We're okay with it, all right? If you allow that, then other people will think it's okay to sleep with their stepmother. See how that works? It's like if you go around saying, that's no big deal, bro, and and we're just all one big happy family, and God is love, and it's okay, you can kind of live your lifestyle however you want, then other people get the misunderstanding that I guess that's okay. So that's why part of church discipline is for the admonition, protection, and purification of the church. But the thing that we're going to talk about here in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 is this part, the restoration of the person. Because what's happened is they've actually done, the church has done what they're supposed to do. And this guy now has become broken. Now he's he's broken about his sin. And he's sorry about his sin. So Paul's writing here now in chapter 2 saying, you got to get this guy back in the church. You got to restore this guy. You got to learn what to do when people have come to the place where they repent and they're sorry. You're going to have to come alongside this guy now. And here's what he says. These are the important things about restoring the repentant, okay, that he's saying here in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians. He's he's going to give three words to restore the repentant. The first is you're going to have to forgive this person. He uses that word six times just between verses 7 and 10. You're going to have to forgive this person, all right? They're at a place now, and obviously the understanding already is that they're repentant, okay, thus the restoration of someone who's repentant. Because he's going to talk here about excessive sorrow in verse 7, so we'll get into that in a little bit. But this person is sorry about their sin, sorry for what they've been doing, so Paul says you're going to have to forgive them. You have to demonstrate forgiveness. You have to show that you know forgiveness because you've experienced forgiveness, so forgive them. Then he says, the other thing you need to do, verse 7, comfort him. And it is the word... Parakaleo, it is a similar word used for the Holy Spirit. It's the word that means to come alongside. That's the way the Holy Spirit works with us. He comes alongside of us. And then when we know Christ, he comes within us and upon us. But Paul is saying here, you're going to have to comfort this guy. More than just say, we forgive you, bro. That's necessary to say, but more than that, you better put feet to it. You're going to have to come alongside of this person. Come alongside of them. Put your arm around them. Say, we just want to comfort you. 
we see that you have come to a place where you've hit rock bottom. So we just want to love on you. And we just want to bring you back in the church. We just make sure that you are welcome in the fellowship. And the third word that he uses is the word love there in verse 8, where he says, I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. And it is the word agape. He says, reaffirm it. Agape is the highest form of love that you only can demonstrate and receive in a relationship with Christ, really. So he says, I want you to forgive this guy. I want you to comfort this guy. I want you to love this guy, restore this guy, bring him back into the fellowship, make sure that he knows that he's loved and welcomed. Otherwise, here's the warning to it, the person might not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. He says, what's going to happen is, if you don't time this right, and if you don't wrap your arms around this guy now that he's repented, he says he's going to become overwhelmed by shame. You know what happens when we're overwhelmed by shame? We hide. We withdraw. We become secluded. He says, I don't want this guy to be overwhelmed with shame. You don't want this guy to be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. That's why you have to forgive him, comfort him, and love him. Don't let him feel overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. The last point that he makes, you better do all this so that Satan might not outwit us, he says in verse 11. Because see, Satan would love for somebody to just feel continually shamed, and he would love for us to help that person feel continually shamed. So he says, you better forgive this person, comfort this person, and love this person so that Satan doesn't outwit us because Satan is all about unforgiveness. Satan is all about condemnation. But what is God all about? He's the great forgiver of our souls. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. So when we have been forgiven by God, but we're still under this cloud of condemnation, it's either us who are continually condemning ourselves or it's other people who are condemning us. Either one is not right. When we're forgiven, he whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And when we are forgiven, we need to make sure that we restore someone, forgive them, comfort them, and love them so that they would know that grace is real and forgiveness is real and restoration is real and bring them back into the fold and help to restore them so that they don't feel under this blanket of shame and so that Satan doesn't outwit us. Amen? Let's finish out the chapter. He says in verse 12, When I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, Troas is in northeastern Turkey on a map today. He says, When I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. I like that verse, verse 13. I still had no peace of mind. King James says, I had no rest in my spirit. The Greek is anison pneumati. You know, God opened a door for him, but he said, I just didn't have this peace about it. God opens doors. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's the right timing. And so for Paul, he's like, you know what? I'm just kind of restless. I don't have rest in my spirit. And so he moved on. He says, never go against your peace. And if you have that check in your spirit, like, ah, I just don't have quite that peace, then don't go forward with something. Just wait until you have God's peace. He says in verse 14, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ 
And through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are the smell of death, to the other the fragrance of life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity like men sent from God. Now, this last section here in chapter 2, he's using language of the day. Thanks be to God who leads us in this triumphal procession. Now, what he's talking about is when the Romans had a victory, depending on how great the victory was, if it was great, they would have this victory parade through the streets of Rome when the soldiers would come back from fighting wherever they fought. In order to have a victory parade, a general had to be a field officer who, in the course of battle, killed at least 5,000 or more of the enemy. And brought back the spoils. So this is what would happen. This general who led this great military campaign somewhere would come back with his army after this great victory. They'd carry back the spoils and they would also bring back the officers of the enemy army, bring back the officers in chains. They would have this incredible parade where they would have Roman senators and dignitaries at the beginning of the line, followed by trumpeters, followed by... Roman priests who would have incense that would be burning and they would be waving these censers as part of this parade, followed by the prisoners of war, these officers of the opposing army that have been defeated in chains, humiliated. And then behind them, they would have more musicians and then behind them would be the general of the Roman army and his unit behind them, all decorated and carrying the spoils of victory. Paul is using this language, and he says basically this. He says, Jesus is our general who has been victorious. And Paul says, and I'm just a member of his army following behind him in this victory parade. And he says, now thanks be to God who leads us in victory. Several times through this passage, he talks about this aroma and this fragrance. He says, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. Now he's using the analogy of these priests who would be waving these censers of incense. It would be the sweet aroma through the streets of Rome. Verse 13, for we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are the smell of death. To the other, the fragrance of life. So he talks about aroma and fragrance and smell. Now, we've come to understand smell is a strong force, is powerful. The sense of smell is very powerful. I guarantee you, let me ask you right now, can some of you think of a particular aroma that conjures up a wonderful memory about something. There's a certain smell that whenever you smell that, you just remember something wonderful. i tell you what it is for me. So when I was a kid growing up, I didn't have any brothers. I just had a sister. But I had five cousins, and I was like right in the middle of, the co- of my cousins in age. And so they were like brothers to me, and so we would hang out a lot together. I'd spend summers with them. And my uncle and aunt had a summer house in Rainsburg, Pennsylvania, a little tiny town. It's in Bedford County, Pennsylvania. And we'd go up there in the summers and just spend time at their house in Rainsburg. And it was kind of in the back hills of Pennsylvania when the streets were mainly gravel. And so you know how they get dusty during the summertime, dry and dusty. And so the Pennsylvania Highway Department would come through every summer and they would spray tar 
spray tar on these dirt roads to kind of keep the gravel and the dust down. Because I always had wonderful memories of being with my cousins in Rainsburg, Pennsylvania, every time I smell tar, that just conjures up these wonderful memories. So I could be on the road and they're repairing the road and doing tar. I'm like, oh, Rainsburg. Oh, it takes me back. You can have wonderful memories. You can also have some very tragic memories, too. Smells can also remind you of things that are very tragic. But scents, aromas are very powerful. My wife and I, we like to go up to Lancaster, Pennsylvania every once in a while. And there's this place we go to. It's the Candle Barn. And we'll just go and we'll just smell all these different candles. Now, you know, most candles are these wonderful, fluffy kind of scents, you know, like butter cookies and lemon meringue pie, and cinnamon bun, and lavender. You know, I'm not sure where all the candles are for the men, though, you know? And actually, I remember finding one time, I was in a Hallmark store or something, shopping one time for Christmas, and I actually found a candle that on the front said, mowed grass. And I opened up and I smelled it. It smelled just like freshly cut mowed grass. And I thought, you know what? I need to start a candle shop for men. Not that men will buy it, but their wives will for them. In addition to mowed grass, I come up, hunting flannel. Wouldn't that be a wonderful scent, guys? Anyway, I digress, but here's what I'm talking about. Scents can conjure up certain things, good and bad. And the same scent can be good to some and bad to others. I remember talking to this family that had tragically lost a loved one. And the smell of carnations was horrible to the mom who lost her son because it reminded her of the funeral. Now, carnation, depending on whether you like it or not, I mean, a lot of people think, well, that's a good scent. But to her, you see, it reminded her of a tragic event, and it was a bad scent. I used to think when I read 2 Corinthians chapter 2 that the burden was on me, what scent do I project? Because he says here, He says, we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are the smell of death and to the other the fragrance of life. And I, for years, read this passage and thought, I guess I got to be careful that I'm the fragrance of life to people and that I'm not coming across in a bad way and that would be the fragrance of death. But in reality, it's not on us. A carnation has one scent, but depending on the stage of life or the perspective of the person, it'll either be good or bad. Such it is with us. You are and I am to reflect the fragrance of Christ. This is our mission. Here it is, just summarizing verse 14. We are to spread everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ. That's our mission. But whether we smell like life or death depends on the person who smells the fragrance, not us. See, there are some people who reject God, reject Christ, And are offended by your faith. So when you spread the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ just because you're being a godly person, some people think you smell like death. To others who understand the life-changing relationship that comes with Christ, you live your faith for Christ, you live out your life in a godly way, you're the smell of life to people who join with you in that wonderful hope that we have in Him. In other words... Our mission is to spread everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ. How we are received, whether it smells like life or death, depends on the people that we rub shoulders with. It's not on us. We're just to do our part to represent him well, to make sure wherever we go, we spread the fragrance 
of the knowledge of Christ. Where you work, where you live, what's your aroma? Do you at least put out a fragrance so that people know that you are a believer? One way or another, you're going to smell like life or you're going to smell like death. But it is on us to spread everywhere fragrance of the knowledge of Christ. Hope is an open ocean, jump in and you'll find the cornerstones, your connection, run towards your new life. We're so glad you joined us for this edition of Cornerstone Connection as we explore more of the book of 2 Corinthians. There is no other book of the Bible that goes as in-depth into Paul's sufferings as 2 Corinthians. Paul didn't mention these things for bragging rights or for pity. On the contrary. In fact, Paul only mentioned the hardships he'd been through to prove that even though his pedigree as a Pharisee was top-notch, he could relate to anyone who has and will suffer for the sake of Christ. Being a Christian doesn't come easy, and Paul could attest to that firsthand. But his whole point in mentioning those things wasn't for you to focus solely on all the bad things he went through. His intent was to help his readers focus on the why of what he was doing, which was because of Jesus and his message spreading, no matter the personal cost. Are you living life in this way, willing to do whatever it takes for others to know about Jesus? If you're desiring to be with a community of believers who have this as their mission, then we'd love to meet you in person at Cornerstone Chapel. Head over to cornerstoneconnection.cc to find out more details as to where we meet and when. That's all for today here on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.